0: Welcome, everybody. Um, Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. I'm Steve Hellman. I'm the managing partner of Mobility Impact Partners, and greatly appreciate you guys uh, joining today. Um, Those of you who know Mobility Impact Partners understand we are a private equity firm that brings together the critical stakeholders in the mobility ecosystem, OEMs and tier one suppliers, uh, electric utilities, telecoms, fleets, freight, logistics, oil and gas companies, as well as major cities and municipalities to identify common challenges, find solutions to those challenges, invest in those solutions, and then bring those innovations back to the operating businesses of our partners. And um, we've partnered today with um, Bain, with Credit Suisse, with Bloomberg New Energy Finance, the Auto Tech Council, um, and many others with the help of the American Debate League to um, put together today's program. The resolution for today's debate is, um, global oil demand will peak during this decade. That may sound like a technocratic question, but it's a pretty important question with all sorts of economic and political consequences that we'll be discussing today. Arguing in favor of the resolution, i.e. that oil demand will peak shortly, is Michael Cohen uh, from BP, and arguing con will be Bob McNally from Rapid Energy. The debate is moderated by Marian Ka from Columbia University. Um, All of you are seeing poll questions and we kindly request that you answer them now if you haven't already done so. We're gonna ask the same questions at the end of the debate with the idea that we'll see how um, people's opinions track as a result of the conversation. Before we get started, a few housekeeping issues. Um, one is the session is being recorded, um, and registered guests will receive a link to the recording. It will also be posted on our website and be available otherwise. The debate is on the record, um, and members of the media are free to use the material. Please kindly note, however, that the speakers are speaking in their personal capacities, not as representatives of BP, and Columbia University, etc. Um, the audience is muted on entry, obviously, but you can submit questions during the presentation by clicking the Q&A button. Um, there are a very large number of people in the audience today. So please forgive us if our panelists don't get to all of your questions. We'll try our best. Um, but it is important to note that after the debate, there is an informal reception that will be held on Tucan, not on Zoom. So in other words, not here. There's a separate link that you need to go to to join the reception. Um, the link is in the should be in the chat box. Please feel free to join us. Um, for those of you who have never been on Tucan, you're going to need when you go in, you're going to need to sign up. In other words, uh, give your email address and choose a password and so forth um, to register on Tucan, or you can use um, your Gmail or Facebook. Um, and then um, please join the informal reception, at which point you should be able to have an opportunity to ask all of your questions that we haven't had a chance to get to. Um, in the days of Zoom fatigue, I'm sure you guys will all enjoy um, being on Tucan. It'll be a refreshing experience. Now, um, I'd like to quickly introduce Marion. Um, Marion Ka uh, spent 25 years as the chief economist of ConocoPhillips but has changed hats and is now an adjunct senior research scholar and advisory board member at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, where she focuses on the energy transition and on ESG issues for oil and gas. Over to you, Marion. Thanks for um, managing this, um, this event.
1: Thank you, Steve. I first want to explain how this debate is going to work. We're first going to have brief opening remarks on the pro side of the question of whether oil demand will peak this decade, and then have opening remarks on the con side. Then each of the debaters will have a few minutes to rebut points made by the other side. Then we're going to have a crossfire among the debaters where they can ask each other questions. And then we're going to ask our two expert panelists to question each of the debaters. And finally, we will give the pro and con debaters a short time for closing remarks. The debater slides have been shared with each other and expert panelists in advance so we could get thoughtful questions and responses, no no surprises here. And as uh, Steve mentioned, we're not going to have time to take audience questions here, but you're all invited to attend the networking session that follows in Toucan, where some of the uh, questions are going to be answered. So now I'd like to introduce the debaters on the pro side of demand. Peaking this decade, we have Michael Cohen, the Chief U.S. Economist and Head of Oil Analysis BP. Michael has also worked as an oil analyst at Barclays and the International Energy Agency. On the con side of demand peaking this decade, we have Robert McNally, who is the president of Rapidan Energy Group, a consulting firm that specializes in energy risks, markets, policy, and geopolitics. Bob has also served previously as an energy advisor in the Bush White House. So Let's get started and I will introduce the two expert panelists later. Michael, you're up and you have six minutes to make your pro case.
2: Thank you. Um, Can we make sure that the slides are ready to go? Okay. Um, So, first, I want to thank Mobility Impact partners, Bain & Company, BNF, and and other partners for sponsoring and hosting this important debate. Um, I also want to thank Steve Hellman for the idea and for helping to synthesize our thoughts around this issue. So I want to highlight what this debate is and what this debate is not. So this is a debate about the prospect that oil demand might peak before 2030 and what the potential implications of that are. What this debate is not is a debate about whether BP thinks oil demand has peaked because BP's energy outlook is very clear that there's a range of, a wide range of likely possible outcomes for oil demand. Um, Also, it's not a debate about the short term, what we're all living through right now. We're going to present scenarios, uh, and I will present scenarios to 2030. Uh, These are my own views, and I want to be very clear. I think there is a case for oil demand to peak during this decade, and I believe the company strategy needs to be robust to this possible outcome. This doesn't mean that I'm either bullish or bearish on oil prices in the short or medium term, um, because I think that it's important to reflect on two things that are true. You can believe that oil demand will peak by 2030 and still be bullish on oil prices versus the forward curve, since being bullish or being bearish depends on a supply response from OPEC plus countries. Second, one can believe that hundreds of billions of dollars of capital are still needed in oil and gas investment to offset declines at mature fields. These decline rates have accelerated in the last year as a result of declines in investment. So there is still a substantial amount of capital that is still required even in decarbonization scenarios in oil and gas. So let me summarize my argument. Oil demand can peak by 2030 using a bottom-up and a top-down approach as new technologies and more stringent policies are beginning to de-link that traditional relationship between rising incomes and oil demand. So first, from the bottom-up, if we can move to the first slide, this chart makes two points. I'm just gonna wait for the slide to to move, there we go. Um, One, that total oil demand is largely driven by transport shown here in blue, and that accounts for roughly half of oil demand. The chart on the left that shows transport, oh sorry, on the right that shows transport only shows that oil demand in transport can peak around 2030 or even sooner. And this is important because the transport sector provided half of the growth in oil demand and um, that we have seen since 2000 and the question for our debate is whether these factors can bend the curve even before 2030. And so as evidence in the chart on the right, the BPBAU and IHS inflexions case, case both show peaks in transport related oil demand by 2030. If we can move on to the next slide. All of these projections assume higher fuel efficiency, increased fuel switching and policy impetus. In deeper decarbonization scenarios, even different behaviors are assumed as well. But our analysis indicates that more than half of the fuel offset before 2030 is happening due to fuel efficiency. And these regulations as shown in this chart are increasing in their stringency across the world. Emissions levels in new passenger cars in Europe have to be reduced 37.5% by 37.5% by 2025 compared to 2021. In China, fuel efficiency standards are tightening by almost 40% by 2025 to almost 58 miles per gallon. And the same thing is happening in other countries around the world. Now, despite policy uncertainty in the US, average fuel economy improved by 3% in the last year after stagnating over the last four years. The final point I want to make, and there's another slide in in my appendix that shows this, is that OEMs are clearly looking to utilize hybridization technology, which includes both mild and full configurations to increase efficiency and lower emissions in vehicles that are less efficient and have higher CO2 emissions. So we can move on to the next slide. In some cases, obviously, depending on policy design and especially in Europe, Automakers are turning to EVs to meet emissions targets. Uh, I want to make three points here about electrification. First, the train, or in this case, the OEM has already left the station. We've seen maturing technology, reduced total cost of ownership, more incentives and policy support. And so as a result, many OEMs... Michael, you AMs have
1: one minute left. i are just giving you a warning.
2: Thank you. Many OEMs are announcing targets to sell 100% EVs from 2025 to 2040. Second point related to geography, BEV sales reached 2 million in 2020, which is doubling in just two years since the 1 million barrier was passed in 2018. And third, as this chart shows, there's upside risk to these forecasts. So BEV sales are inflecting in all major markets and there's upside risk. If we can move to the next slide, here's another 40 million barrels a day of oil that is used. There's a conventional view that strong demand for plastics uh, increased significantly faster than global growth did in the past. And I believe this needs to be questioned. We can come back to that. If we can move on to the next slide, all of this raises the question of how oil use per GDP or the oil intensity might evolve. And so this trend, if we can move to the next slide has been converging across regions. Um, of course, COVID has disrupted it, but notably, the rate of improvement is seen across all, uh, across all geographies. Finally, I want to conclude with with two quick slides. So I'm going to make a far simpler top-down argument. I decompose countries, we can move one more slide, to, there we go, to countries where oil demand was growing through 2019 and then countries where it was not. And so to give you a sense of what this looks like, the growing share was a third of oil demand and the shrinking share was two-thirds. So, you know, the last the chart here shows that a third of that oil demand is growing less fast over the last five years uh, than than it has in the past. And finally can you
1: wrap up, you were out of time.
2: Yep, here we go. And so to conclude, let me summarize, oil demand can peak over the coming decade. Secondly, BAU and current policy type scenarios are far from being consistent with Paris aligned scenarios. And this matters because these policies will only accelerate in the coming years as societies demand change, even if US policy remains less stringent. So I'll stop there and uh, over to you, Bob. Okay, oh, Bob. Uh,
3: all right. Uh, well, listen. Um, Let me start by thanking Mobility Impact Partners as well, Steve, for sponsoring this debate. I'm delighted to be joined by my friend and superb analyst, Michael Cohen, and a shout out to BP, which provides us all with extensive data sets and transparent forecasts. Makes for a great discussion. Over the last couple of years, the consensus has shifted to embrace the view that decarbonization policies will cause global oil demand to decouple, as Michael said, from GDP growth this decade and peak around 2030. It's the new normal, not just a case. Billions of dollars in capital are being waged on this consensus shift. So let me give it a six or maybe seven minute reality check. Next slide. On the left, global oil demand uh, through 2019, so before COVID. Demand typically grows at about half the rate of global GDP. So about a million and a half barrels a day per year, barring recessions or extreme price volatility, which we recently saw there to the left. Turning to the right side of the chart, until recently, IEA, BP, and other leading forecasters assumed a business-as-usual scenario based roughly on this traditional 1.5 million barrel a day demand growth rate. Please note that BAU does not assume cars don't get more efficient. They do at about 2% a year, but BAU assumes no step change, no no huge change in either preferences or policies uh, that move the needle one way or the other. That's held for scenarios. But starting in 2020, and this is very important, IEA, EP, and others canceled BAU. IEA said it couldn't imagine business as usual prevailing in today's circumstances. Other leading forecasters, as you see, did the same. All scenarios now assume a massive decoupling in oil demand from GDP growth this decade and a peak by 2030. Call it a green decoupling. Now this green decoupling happenings happens entirely in the road transportation sector, which accounts for about 44% global oil demand. The main driver is a step change improvement in vehicle fuel efficiency, like Michael mentioned. Now electric vehicles are a bigger post 2030 demand story. Fleet turnover takes decades. Uh, growth is exponential in sales, but we're starting from a very small base, two to 4% uh, in a huge stock. Next slide, please so the question we're betting the farm on is are consumers about to flock to new super efficient gasoline cars in the eu china us really around the world the resounding answer is absolutely not the uh, 2019 the iea itself noted quote a dramatic shift towards bigger and heavier cars around the world including china and warned if consumer appetite continues at this rate these suvs will add nearly two million barrels a day to global oil demand by 2040 offsetting the savings from 150 million electric cars, end quote, IEA. So if consumers are going the wrong way, which they are, will policymakers compel or induce them to purchase more fuel-efficient vehicles this decade? Now let's go around the world. In the EU, the fuel economy regulations, Michael mentioned, are very tough. And uh, ICE cars would be banned after 2035. Three quick points, though, on the EU. One, it accounts for only 6% of oil demand in terms of transport. Total is 12%, as you see on the pie chart. Two, uh, 27 member states have to agree to these rules, and France and Germany, among others, have expressed opposition. Third, it's easier to state new aggressive policies than impose them, and far from certain that future European leaders will impose the necessary transition costs and plenty of evidence to the contrary. Turning to China, those fuel economy standards uh, Michael mentioned are awesome on paper, weakly enforced in practice. Not a lot of transparency in China. Research I've seen suggests they're on track to fail those targets by 36% this year and up to 72% in 2030. Finally, the U.S. The U.S. is the canary in the coal mine for the peak oil consensus upon which we're betting the farm. So let us if we're gonna see peak demand, we'll see it in the United States first. So next slide, please. Black line to the left, uh, black line is gasoline demand. The green offshoots are past EIA forecasts emanating from their publication year. And the recession is shown in the bars and oil prices in blue. The point here is that EIA prematurely predicted peak and collapse in gasoline demand 40 years ago, as it did in 2008. The circumstances were the same. A prior oil price increase had reduced economic growth and oil demand. Temporarily diverted consumers towards fuel-efficient vehicles, and Congress enacted tough fuel economy standards. History is likely to repeat. Oil prices then and now fell, consumer preferences, as I mentioned, shift back towards SUVs, and policy was eased. Next chart. This chart illustrates just how weak CAFE is at actually conserving fuel. Notice the stated policies, the targets for fuel economy improvements for new model years the EPA projects. We have the actual results in terms of actual mpg of new models compared against that i think that chart speaks for itself if i had well, another,
1: you have one minute left
3: all right if i had another 10 i'd explain how cafe is so weak but i'm going to move to the last chart um concluding this little reality check suggests that the consensus jumped the guns since 2018-2019 consumers are going the other way and policy is much too weak for a 2030 peak in demand which is around the corner. But the prevailing consensus is real and it will exacerbate a starvation of investment in oil supply this decade. If it turns out that consumers want 1.5 million barrels a day but can only get half or even less, we will have an oil price spike this, uh, this, later this decade. Uh, that will hurt the economy and history shows, and I look forward to this debate, political support for transition policies. So the new peak demand consensus is not only unlikely, it is dangerous. Thank you. Excellent. Okay,
1: now we get to the rebuttal part and Michael, you start and you have three minutes for rebuttal to things that you've, you've heard Bob say that you don't agree with. Go.
2: Okay, so I, I think the first thing to focus on, and again, I, I have learned a lot from Bob over the last uh, decade since we've known each other. And it, again, it is it is a great honor to be here and to to discuss this important topic. Um, I think one thing that I would I would focus on is the there is not a bottom up analysis in in some of the slides that Bob showed, and I think it would be useful um, if the the forecast um, that that rapidan or that is shown in the in some of the charts actually include some of the sector base sector by sector basis for for some of that uh, for some of those projections. The other thing that I that uh, Bob that you, you noted was the share of oil demand uh, as a as a share of total for the EU. I think what I would be focused on and, and thinking about is just the share of global sales into the EU market. Um, because those those cars and those uh, vehicles can end up going to other parts of of the world. Um, and if you look at the uh, amount of new cars sold in China, eu, the United states um, and and a couple other countries, uh, you're looking at a a great you're looking at the majority of sales globally and so this is important when we think about all the cars that are entering into the market that by and large are going to be used at a higher frequency, at a higher load factor than those cars that are older. Uh, so that is something else that I think, I think is important to consider. One of the, the other questions that, that I would have uh, um, and that I would I would uh, respectfully maybe disagree on is, is this question of, of the effectiveness of Chinese uh, targets. So we've seen BEV sales already in China about thirteen percent of total, um, and the OEMs are using BEVs and hybrid uh, technology to continue to meet these uh, the dual credit standard in in the Chinese context. The other point that I that I didn't have a chance to make myself, as it relates to the, uh, the cafe standards, is that even if consumers are going one direction. It is clear to me that OEMs are going in the opposite direction. and OEMs do see their competitive uh, their their competitive uh, proposition as being able to provide some of these new technologies into into the market. And so this is a, a question for debate is that if if we accept as given that consumers are going one direction in certain certain jurisdictions, the, the debate about cafe standards may become purely academic if OEMs are offering more and more more efficient uh, technologies uh, to to those consumers. So um, anyway, we can come back to that. I think my my key point here, though, is that from both a top down and from a bottom up perspective, I can show that that oil demand can't peak by twenty thirty, um, and it's not, I'm not you know BP and my calculations are not alone in showing that. So I'd be interested in, in your projections as well.
1: Thank you. Okay, your time is up. Bob.
3: All right, thank you very much. And thank you, Michael, for those uh, observations and questions. In my rebuttal, I'd like to focus on something you focused on, which is a uh, falling intensivity of GDP growth and rising uh, fleet efficiency. Um, uh, the kind of bottom line is that, you know, we see, and BP's data are great for this, that efficiency uh, in the fleet improves uh, over time. Uh, Between 1975 and 2019, uh, automotive fleet efficiency in the United States increased by 90%, but gasoline consumption increased by by 40%. And BP's own data shows that if you look at oil intensity, so how how many barrels of oil does it take to generate uh, a a, a percent of GDP growth, that has fallen uh, by about 50% uh, to about 35% since 1965, while oil demand has tripled. So, again, we're not debating whether the world will become more efficient in using oil, whether cars will become efficient. What we're debating here is, was there a change in the last two years that caused BP and IEA and others? It's really about others' forecasts and not so much rapid It's the consensus-forming forecast sort of lurched over to this view uh, that we're on a much bigger sort of step-change path towards vehicle efficiency this decade. And this was at a time when President Trump was easing U.S. fuel economy uh, regulations, which were already uh, quite weak. China is phasing out its purchase subsidies uh, for EVs. And um, so I I, I just, I guess I I look, that's my big question, is I look and I say, what changed uh, from 2019 uh, to, uh, uh, to now that caused this sea change in view about about 2030. Um, so that would be the, the, my, the main point of, uh, well, uh, finally, um, I, I think in terms of, you know, I know in your slides, you would, earlier slides, I think you noted that 50 s- countries had seen peaking and so forth. I think more than a, more, what we really have to look at is, is what's happening in the countries that are most populous and maybe don't have the per capita oil demand we do. Uh, there are 8 billion people on the planet. We're going to add another half a billion by 2030. 18% live in the advanced economies. where demand is sort of moderating, 82% don't. They live in Asia, Africa, Latin America. Uh, they want access to transportation. The question is, what are they going where are they going to get it? The U.S., with about 4% of the world's population, consumes about six times as many oil per cap, much oil per capita as a Chinese person, 15% than an Indian. And these two account for one-third, over one-third of, of global humanity. Uh, so, again, I, I think the focus needs to be, as you said, in some ways, on sales of cars, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But also, where is demand growing? What are the preferences there? And what is the real-world policy... Uh, Uh, stringency again I would argue outside of Europe where on paper they're quite tough I will give you that Europe is no kidding about it everywhere else uh, much too weak for a sort of around the corner 2030 peak demand shift again from 2019 to now I just don't see the, the kind of evidentiary basis for it thank you great
1: okay so now we're going to move to the crossfire between debaters and they each have four minutes to get to question the other party and have the answers to the other parties and they could use it up on one or two questions So Bob is going to start first by asking Michael questions. So go ahead.
3: I guess I'm going to ask just one question where I ended up with, um, the issue is whether demand will peak by 2030. That is the new consensus, IEA, BP, uh, many others, as we've seen other, uh, BP's peers, that shift happened in the last two years. While the U.S. was weakening its already weak fuel economy policies, China is phasing out purchase subsidies, and consumers have been moving massively towards more fuel-efficient vehicles. So my real question is just uh, what changed in the last two years?
2: So thanks for the question, Bob. I think that there, there are a couple things to be considering here. All of the forecasters that you cite, including BP, are looking at a wide range of possible scenarios right and those possible scenarios some of them can include scenarios that see oil demand continuing to grow even after 2030 and i think that it is clear even in in some that are that are being proposed by whether it's a, a wood Mackenzie or or ihs that there are clear reasons why those oil demand scenarios see continued see continued growth in oil demand so i guess i would come back to the uh, come back to the characterization around a consensus view. I would argue that there is no consensus view. There's a louder debate around the possibility that oil demand can peak before 2030. And I think that we're seeing that from from IEA and from their not having that scenario of showing uh, a current policy scenario or a, a no change in policy type scenario. And I think the primary reason is in one of the charts that, that I had that I didn't get to talk about much showed it is that the implications of that may be, you know, three, three and a half or four degrees of warming if that pathway continues. And I think that that's why we come back to the, the question of what is, what is plausible uh, from a climate perspective. Can we see that oil demand uh, continuing to increase beyond 2030 seems to be um, unlikely and and so I think that that's the, the the reason why we've seen the bounds of expectations begin to narrow, especially towards the upper end of the spectrum, because we don't know, and nor can we quantify, uh, what would be implied from a climate perspective of oil demand reaching into the hundred and ten, hundred and twenty million barrel a day range in the twenty thirty to twenty forty kind of uh, kind of outcome, or time frame.
1: Great. Okay, Michael,
2: now you have four minutes to question Bob. So, I think the the, the question of um, one third of oil demand that I showed in in some of my charts sort of reaching a a peak and then declining. um, Sorry, one third of of oil demand versus two thirds of oil demand that has already peaked and is declining. The key question I think I want to try to focus on here and, and maybe discuss with you is that you would have to assume that oil demand from that third grows faster than the, than the prospective decline from the two-thirds that has already peaked, right? So we're, we're dealing with a, a pie that is by and large already seen that peak and is declining and has uh, policies and societies that may see increasing preferences around increasing amounts of fuel efficiency, even despite that other third. So My question to you is, is, do you think or do you observe that in some of your analysis of, of, other, of other forecasters or, or in your own view? I, I guess the, the key question here is, how do you reconcile what the facts are showing, which is on a sector basis, you can see the, the case for, for a peaking, and on a geographic basis, I think you can make the case as well.
3: well thank you for that question. Um, so I think we have to define a little bit how you're slicing the oil demand pie. Uh, but again, I'm focused on how the, in this case, the IEA, uh, shifted from, uh, sort of 2019 to 2020, along with other leading forecasters and, uh, and created what I do believe is, is a consensus shift and sort of a benchmark outlook. So if you look at the IEA. Uh, they break oil demand down into sort of uh, five sectors, right? Road, transport, aviation, and shipping. So call that transportation at about 56% of uh, of the market. And then uh, industry and petrochemicals, and then buildings and buildings power, along with other, about 44%. So split roughly half and half. That's how I splice the pie. Now, the IEA in 2019... Um, and I didn't disagree with this, saw about 1% growth in each of those sectors. So petchem, buildings power, growing in their now canceled business as usual, about a percent. So I don't see any peaking in any sector that I typically look at. Transportation until 2019, until 2020, the IEA also saw um, about a percent, a percent growth in that sector. So growth in both of the main sectors of, of oil. What changed when you go into the 2020 IEA report. And of course, they canceled BAU. And you look at their steps, as you know, their more aggressive policy scenario. You say, well, what changed in those sectors? The IEA left um, petrochemicals and industrial demand the same, about a percent growth. So they still see growth in that sector. But then they collapsed demand in transportation down to, I think it was about uh, 0.3 or something like that. percent. So they still see a, a almost a flattening. I think I would agree with you at uh, 0.3 is getting pretty low. So they crushed uh, demand for transportation and oil and left petrochemicals, industrial the same. And that comes back to my question, why? Okay.
1: All right, now we're going to go to our expert panelists. Each of them will ask two questions of their assigned debater. Uh, questioning the proposition of Michael will be Arjun Murthy. <laughs> Arjun is a senior advisor at Warburg Pincus and is a fellow advisory board member with me at Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy. He was previously an energy equity analyst at Goldman Sachs and currently serves on the board of ConocoPhillips. Questioning the composition of Bob McDally will be Ethan Phillips, who is a partner in Bain's Houston office and leads their practice in the oil and gas sector for the Americas. Uh, Bain is also a sponsor of this event. So, Arjun, you now have four minutes to ask and have Michael Cohen answer your questions. Please go ahead.
4: Uh, Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And I, too, am here in my personal capacity, not with any of my affiliations. Uh, Michael, uh, great presentation. Your fellow panelists wrote a great book called Crude Volatility that I do recommend the panel that the audience go purchase immediately. (laughs) And my question is, in the context of the next decade and the potential for oil demand to peak, Neither you nor I want to make a price forecast. I'm not asking you to do that in the least. But if we do have an environment of, in, of the inevitable volatility, the potential for crisis, maybe there's seeds of it we're seeing today, maybe not. Could be in crude oil, could be in natural gas. How do you see this either accelerating peaking of demand because of perhaps preferences for fuel economy cars or perhaps reducing uh, policy initiatives and taking a step back? How will inevitable volatility drive Uh, your peak
2: demand call so i think there are a couple ways to to think about this the first is well what is the what is the implication of a higher price uh and a consumer's decision uh to to purchase a new vehicle right and i think the the evidence is mixed um but it has over the course of the long term over the last five to seven years resulted in increasing fuel economy as how, as oil prices have have risen um, from from a, a sort of baseline of 2010 or, or or 2011, so we've seen clearly that consumers are making different decisions around how they use their vehicles and the types of vehicles that that they are are purchasing. I think the other interesting angle to to be thinking about, um, which you highlight, is is this question of whether there is an alignment between supply and demand. And So as a result of the the volatility that we saw over the last uh, two years, uh, as a result of COVID, we've seen, as I mentioned, a a pretty large collapse in investment into supply. One of the slides, and, and I hope we can share these afterwards, one of the slides decomposes the change in the IEA's view around 2025 oil supply. And what you can see from that is the majority, in fact, I would say roughly two thirds to three quarters of that re-revision in supply estimates for 2025 is associated with North American supply. Why that's important? clearly and why it happened is clearly a, a function of capital discipline and i think it's important to think about whether that supply is actually just gone or whether the investor proposition uh, and the way that investors think about whether to to continue to capitalize that those assets and those companies um needs to be re- rethought about over the course of the next year or two because that supply as i said that that supply is not gone it's still there Um, And I think that that reflects that will, in addition to the supply that that is that is has the potential to come from OPEC countries, has the potential in combination with U.S. supply to fill that gap and avoid uh, uh, any kind of um, serious price volatility. But I think the question we have to all ask ourselves is, is that price mechanism broken Um, and are the metrics uh, appropriate at at this point around the, the energy transition? That's a question for probably another debate but I don't know if that, that answers your question, Art.
4: Mary do I have time for a second question?
1: Uh, yes, but it has to be a very quick answer. There's less than a minute left.
2: Okay.
4: There's billions of people without adequate energy access. Um, in the, terms of the potential to peak to 2030, decreasing non-OECD intensity is a big part of it, but when I see those billions of people who are going to want to have our types of living, it does make me question that assumption. How, how do you think about energy access
2: affordability impacting your forecasts
1: and you so have 15 a, seconds to respond
2: <laughs> well it's a, it's clearly important we've we've shown many slides that that uh, in the past have, have shown that clear relationship I think the point is is that um, and Christoph rule and ha- has written about this over the course of the last uh, you know four or five months there's a clear trend and a clear trend around convergence. Um, so we think that yes, more people need energy access. Nobody is arguing with that, but are they going to be consuming it in the same way and and at the same levels as, as we've seen in OECD countries, I think is is the key question. And we would argue, no, um, and and that's, I'm I'm afraid you
1: are out of time. Okay. So let us move to Ethan who now has four minutes to ask Bob McNally to uh, answer his questions.
5: Excellent. Great to be here. And, Bob, great, uh, great presentation. I um, wanted to lead off with a, a question that, that, uh, that Michael started to get into. Um, historically, the cure for high oil prices has always been high oil prices, is that pulls new supply online. You, you outlined that beautifully in the, the book that, that, uh, that Arjun mentioned. Um, you know, there's indications now that, that, that the fear of stranded assets and other forms of ESG risk are, are driving up the cost of capital for oil producers, which, uh, which leads to higher project or, uh, hurdle rates. Uh, which would ultimately lead to a higher equilibrium uh, oil price, as you mentioned, uh, and, and therefore a, high, a lower equilibrium demand, which would not only impact demand a- across the sector, it, w- it would also make uh, alternate forms of demand relatively more economic. Uh, just curious, in, in your view, are investors accurately pricing those ESG risks? And is there a risk that the higher cost of capital will, will ultimately lead to a, a lower demand equilibrium?
3: Great question. Thank you, Ian. Uh, I do think investors are misallocating capital. I do think there's going to be a crunch on demand side on investment return, of cap- return on capital is going up for the industry. You will we'll see less investment there. We agree. I would differ a little bit on how oil price booms work. And I remember the theme in the book is the boom is followed by a bust. Uh, price booms are terrifying for political leaderships. You can talk to President Carter about that. You could have talked to President H.W. Bush about that. You can um, uh, you, you can talk to President Obama about that, who at a missed $100 oil was greenlighting fracking, opening uh, up our exports of oil, and um, and sort of moderating the sort of climate tr- transition policies. So I think on the political side, and the real question here is how will transition policies be affected by a spike in oil prices into the $100 range? Yes, it will temporarily cause consumers to prefer more fuel efficient vehicles, no question, but only if that price sticks. Will there be a long-term effect right and the only way you can make it stick is to put a tax a big tax on fuel otherwise we know from history michael made very good points whether we have an effective swing producer or not a bust is going to follow the boom and everything will unwind and go the other way as for political willingness to put a tax on oil i would ask you i commend you uh, french president macron uh, who uh, tried to increase the tax on diesel um, for carbon reasons a carbon tax for climate reasons and ignited the yellow vest protests, and had to um, had to rescind that policy. And he's not the only one in major consuming countries that we've seen uh, a backtrack from willingness to impose higher costs on consumers.
1: Okay, you have
3: you have over a minute left, so you have a second question you can ask.
5: Great, um, you know, so 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 Bob, Michael, we're all staring into our crystal balls here. I I think. Um, you know, one, one thing that it's, it's helpful to note is that the world has seen peak demand before. You make a great, uh, a great point about uh, the linkage between GDP and oil demand and, you know, at, at will, will it ever break? Uh, curious to, you know, from your perspective, will we know when we've reached demand peak? Is this something that we will only recognize a, a decade plus after it's happened? How will we know if we've, a, we've actually gotten there?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, Michael's uh, BP and Vaclav Smil, probably the greatest energy thinker, have done a wonderful chart about the history of energy sources in the past. And what it shows is energies don't tend to die or peak, they tended to get added to. We've had a a peak uh, near term, a plateau in coal and nuclear, but if we want baseload carbon free electricity, we have to go back to nuclear. And sweden just turned on an oil price oil oil generator so i don't know it's fair to yet count those out um, and it's again a great data set on that um i think we'll, when will we know it uh, as we all know and bp does a good job by providing good data data are really hard to get i think we'll know if we see basically u.s gasoline demand peak and collapse in the next few years as iea eia expect that'll be a good indication amidst stable oil prices and if we get to the end of the decade and crude prices are around $80 and supply is only half a million barrels a day, and then I would say we're looking at probably approaching a peak. I think we're gonna see three times that price increase uh, and going the other way, but those would be indicators. The data, though, will come, you know, as we all know, uh, with a big lag. Great question. Okay. Thank you. Thank
1: you. We're gonna take one audience question now. Uh, this This audience person leans towards McNally's view that oil demand will remain strong, but is asking, If OPEC members like UAE and Iraq are ramping up production of their huge untapped oil reserves to avoid getting stuck with stranded assets, does continued oil demand really imply that new oil fields outside of OPEC are profitable investments? And this question is for Michael.
2: So this question of whether, uh, whether continued oil demand implies that new oil fields outside of OPEC are profitable investments. I guess that companies, including ourselves, look at all of those fields, whether they're in OPEC or non-OPEC countries, and and considers them on their merits. Will they be advantaged hydrocarbons to be part of of the future supply mix? Will they be economic? Um, depends on on where where they are located. But I. I I think it's clear that in all of the scenarios that we've put forward, including the, the scenarios that the IEA has put forward, there is a, an increasing amount of OPAC supply in deep decarbonization scenarios because that supply is lower in carbon intensity on average And that supply tends to fall at the lower end of the global supply stack, and so it wins out. The question, though, over the course of the 2025 and beyond uh, timeframe is the degree of competitiveness, the degree of of cartelization, and that ultimately comes down to a question of whether the uh, countries within OPEC are willing uh, and able to diversify their economies to, to deal with the implications of a lower uh, average price. So not sure if that answered the question, but um, I think that those those are the key questions we have to be answering in order to answer that one.
1: Okay, well, we're gonna move into the final stage of the debate uh, for your debaters closing remarks. So Michael, you have two minutes for your closing pro side remarks.
2: Okay, so I think to come back to the the, the important question, which which Bob posed, we are all analysts looking at the, the range of different scenarios And what changed from 2019 until now is clearly a heightened policy awareness around the effects of climate change. And I think that we need to understand the implications of continued uh, oil use in, in the economy And and clearly policymakers in many jurisdictions are starting to do things in order to start to bend that curve. Second point I would make is that clearly that curve has already bent. It's bent in certain sectors. It's bent in other fuels. And if we break it down by product, break it down by sector, break it down by geography, it's clear that that the that the, the curve associated with oil demand and associated with gasoline demand specifically has already turned uh, south. Now, the other point I want to make and, and highlight is that there is, of course, a lot of nuance to this debate. There are clearly going to be areas, and we need to be reflective of that. There are clearly going to be areas, clearly going to be geographies, including um, I would say in India, where energy access is going to involve higher amounts of, for example, LPG use to replace biomass. And those are clear upside risks. At the same time, I think we need to be able to just do the simple math and and look at what the upside is from those types of dynamics and then reconcile that with the downside effect of of the increasing amount of electrification and increasing amount of efficiency measures that we're seeing in the transport sector, which accounts for half of oil demand. So I think the other thing to consider is that if we are in the, the mode of seeing a price spike, wouldn't that just accelerate the, the fuel switching and the way in which we all behave and use our our cars and consume oil in the in the economy so I, I think if we do see that um, it, it arguably would just bend the curve even further south than, than what we would say if if prices stayed stable. so I will conclude there and again I, I welcome this continued debate and and hopefully uh, we can share the, the full slides
1: okay. Bob, you have your two minutes.
3: All right, thank you, and thank you, Michael. Um, so I'm going to come back again and point out that in a way we're analyzing the analysts. Uh, there is a consensus in the oil market. Uh, go back and look at oil demand forecasts by IEA, EIA, OPEC, BP, Equinor, Exxon, IHS, Woodmac, what have you. Uh, they will all look similar to that chart I showed up until 2019, it doesn't mean it's the only scenario, uh, but what we would typically do is say, look, if if we if what has happened in the past more or less continues, recognizing that oil is a long game with slow changes, transitions we know take many decades, it's like $30 trillion in the value of the capital stock of the fossil fuel industry, very difficult to change. So then what you do is you'd analyze scenarios, more ambition, less ambition, more resource, more source. But what i'm pointing out is that in the last two years the consensus has abandoned uh the idea that things will be more or less uh in the same in this decade as they were in the last 10 years and as i pointed out the trends with consumers were going towards less fuel efficient vehicles policy is weak ambition the need to decarbonize is very strong i don't gain that at all but look at the actions it's very dangerous to bet the farm on stated policies If we could do that, uh, to pick a couple Republican presidents, um, the United States would have been oil import free by 1980. And the president that I work for, George Bush, we promised hydrogen cars in every showroom by 2018. There's a long and sordid history of oil leaders promising swift transitions and not delivering on them. That's one thing. Maybe there's a scenario to have for 2030. But to bet the farm on demand by 2030... I think that's more wishful uh, than wise. Thank you again for for this debate. Thank you, Michael, for your excellent points and to Mobility Impact Partners, and you, Marianne, for for, uh, everybody else.
1: (laughs) For keeping us on time. I I told you I was going to be ruthless about that. So uh, we are actually done with the formal debate, and I'm going to turn the floor back to uh, Steve, who is going to tell us about the polls, and do the closing poll, and then do the comparison between the start and the closing poll. So Steve?
0: Thank you marion um and thanks to um to everybody who's joined the debate uh really i i i I, i've been fascinated by the preparation i've had as much fun um listening to these folks in preparation for this debate as i had in listening to them um now debate i I note that everybody was speaking really really quickly because um I, i i you know in these debate situations you um you definitely want to try to get as many points in as possible and and it would be great to um, listen and have these conversations in the reception that's to follow um, where they can speak a little bit more slowly and, and, um, and answer everybody's questions. Um, while we're wrapping up, please take a moment to respond to the survey questions again. Um, that's really important because we want to see how um, thoughts have tracked over the course of the debate. I really want to thank Michael and Bob for agreeing to take so much fire today and for helping us understand, obviously, a super complex issue. If there's one thing that I took away from the debate, it's way more complicated than just yes or no. Um, I also want to thank Marion, of course, and Arjun and Ethan for keeping everybody honest, extremely helpful. And thanks, of course, to Bain, Credit Suisse, BNEF, Auto Tech Council, American Debate League, everybody else who helped put this together. Um, We greatly appreciate it. I do note that we're unable to include about 90% of people's questions, obviously, in the debate, and I want to repeat the invitation for everybody to join the Can reception, which will be starting immediately as soon as we wrap up here. Um, if you've never been to a Two Can reception, I think you'll enjoy it. Um, and Michael, Bob, Marion, Arjun, Ethan, and I, everybody will be there to, to chat further and answer your questions informally. Um, Bloomberg's actually preparing some Um, Further information prepared to discuss the topic in more detail, a little bit semi formally. So, um, anyway, I hope everyone will be there. Once again, thanks for joining. Um, And if you've learned something today, keep an eye out for our next debate. So, um, greatly appreciated. Thanks, everybody. We'll wrap up here and um, shift over to TUCAN. In the meantime, though, uh, Shannon or Noel, have we got the um, data from the poll? So what is it? Do you, are you able to um, uh, share the results? I I don't know whether I'm seeing them, but compare the before and after that's the thing. Oh, by the way, the other thing I want to mention is that the recording will continue to be available on our website and elsewhere. And um, if you want this, a couple of people in the chat box were requesting the slides. If you want the slides, um, please reach out, respond to the invitation and we'll, we'll get them. We'll try to get them to you.